Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Um, just by way of reminder, before we get started, uh, this is the next to the last week. Next week is the last week, okay? So please show up uh, so we can wrap up chapter, uh, well, 23 through 25. Then we're going to take a break. We'll come back uh, the first week, or I guess the second week of January, the week of the ninth, and we'll begin the second half of the book of Genesis. So that's the schedule. We're going to take a break uh, over the holidays, and um, I'm going to be prepping and studying for the second half of the series, but uh, you'll hear more about that as the days get closer. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump into chapter 22 this morning. Well, Father, we come to you, and we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. And Lord, this is a, a tough chapter, and there's a lot of debate, there's a lot of um, just thoughts about it that we've had over the years, and people uh, throwing stones at it, people raising questions about it, and I pray that today you would, through your Holy Spirit, speak to us and help us to see what you would have us to see. We know it's for you, we know that you're the one who ordained it to be written and recorded for us, and I pray that we would hear from you in a powerful way this morning. And we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Well, as always, uh, I want to welcome everybody here in the room, but also everybody out in uh, Parker County, or not Parker County, but out, out in uh, Granbury, uh, our Sunday night group in Fort Worth, and then also our group down in Johnson County that meets on Thursday night. They all watch us online, and we're glad they're here. Well, this morning, we're going to be in chapter 22. We're, we're actually, you know, I thought, okay, one week I get to do one chapter, and it's going to be easier. No, it happens to be one of the most difficult chapters in the entire Bible, chapter 22. And you're familiar with this story. Uh, if you've grown up in the church, you've been around the church very long, you've heard the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. It's actually a misnomer because if you know the story, he doesn't actually sacrifice Isaac. It, he's told to, but he doesn't end up doing so. But the, the real theme of this chapter is the Lord will provide. That's, that's what comes out of it. There's a lot of themes, but that's the primary theme, that the Lord will provide, and he does provide. And so one of the things I want to kind of start out with is, as I said in my prayer, there's, there's been a lot of stones cast at this particular chapter over the centuries, and particularly by those who are agnostics, atheists, those who refuse to accept the Bible as the Word of God as divinely inspired, they'll always go to this chapter. And, and so I, it's difficult because the picture in it is one that we wouldn't expect from God, right? That, that God would ask anyone to take his son and basically murder him, execute him, sacrifice him. And as we'll see, not just sacrifice him, but sacrifice him, dismember him, and then burn him. It's pretty graphic. It's, it's pretty intense. And so what's happened with this story is that it's, it's been given kind of a dark side to it. It's already got a dark flavor just because of the nature of what God asked Abraham to do. But it's interesting what people have said about this. I ran across this one this week, and this is by Anne Besant. Never heard of her before in my life. But she lived in the 19th century. She was a socialist at that time. She was an author, a writer, uh, kind of an early-day feminist. But this is what she says about this chapter. Everyone knows the beautiful story of Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac, how this noble father led his child to the slaughter, how Isaac meekly submitted, how the farce went on till the lad was bound and laid on the altar, and how God then stopped the murder and blessed the intending murderer for his willingness to commit the crime. 
Now, this thing just reeks with sarcasm, right? It's, it's, she's obviously going over, over and above board to paint this chapter in a very dark, sinister light that God is commanding the murder of this young boy. And if you read the chapter, that's kind of what he's doing. He's telling him to do something that we would find horrendous. Well, let's, let's fast forward to our day and age. One of the most prominent atheists in our day and age is a guy named Richard Dawkins. And he has something to say about this chapter as well. God ordered Abraham to make a burnt offering of his long-for son, Abraham built an altar, put firewood upon it, and trussed Isaac up on top of the wood. His murdering knife was already in his hand when an angel dramatically intervened with the news of a last-minute change of plan. God was only joking after all, tempting Abraham and testing his faith. Then he goes on. A modern moralist cannot help but wonder how a child could ever recover from such a psychological trauma. By the standards of modern morality, this disgraceful story is an example of child abuse. Yet the legend is one of the great foundational myths of all three monotheistic religions, speaking of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. He uses this phrase a lot in his writings that that it's an example of divine child abuse, that God would do this. So you can see why they go to this chapter, why they kind of use it as a litmus test for the character of God, a God they don't even believe in. But if you do believe in him, this is the kind of God you believe in. And and so what it does is it raises questions about who God is, what kind of character he has, and it usually causes everyone, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, to ask questions about the text. And they usually begin with, what kind of God would do this? Well, the problem with that question is we we can apply that question to virtually everything we studied for the last, what, nine weeks. What kind of God would destroy all humanity in a flood? We, we studied that. We saw where God destroyed everybody but one guy, his wife, and his sons and their, their wives. God destroyed it all. What kind of God would do that? Well, a holy, righteous, and just God. What kind of God would annihilate all the inhabitants of two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah? We studied that. Well, what kind of God would do that? the God of the universe, the creator God, the God who takes sin quite seriously. That's the kind of God that would do that. What kind of God would condone the banishment of Hagar and Ishmael? We covered that last week. Why why would God agree with Sarah's demand that Abraham kick Hagar and Ishmael, his son, not just out of the tent, out of the house, out of the family, but out of her sight? God, God said, do as she said. What kind of God would do that? The God who has a plan, the God who is sovereign over all, the God who's not in shock, the God who's not surprised, that's the kind of God. And then finally, what kind of God would order the cultic execution of Abraham's son? And, and it is a cultic execution because it, it's more idolatrous than it is godly. It, it's not what we would expect from the God of the universe, the God who created all life. So we can sit here and we can cast stones and we can raise all kinds of questions. What kind of God would do it? But the chapter is going to answer those questions because the chapter is about God. It's not about Abraham, really, and it's also not about Isaac. Now, we make it about Abraham because when we read the Bible, what we do is we read the Bible for what it has to tell us. 
And that's not inherently wrong, but the Bible is the revelation of God. It's about God. It's secondarily about you and I. But if we're not careful, we'll read the story of Abraham and Isaac, and we'll, we'll look for little moral lessons that we can live out in our lives. Well, thank God he doesn't ever put me to this kind of a test. He's never asked me to put to death one of my kids. I've wanted to do it on occasions, right? You know, but he's never said, Ken, take your daughter, take your son, and do this to them. This isn't about you living out your faith like Abraham. This is about the God of the universe, his holiness, his righteousness. So I want us to keep that in mind as we study this passage. Here's what I wrote in Devotionary, and if you did your homework, you ran across this. But chapter 22 of Genesis is less about the faith-filled exploits of Abraham than it is about the faithfulness of God. That's really one of the key themes, God's faithfulness. Don't forget that. Everything we studied up to this point has pointed over and over again to the faithfulness of God. As we do with so many of the stories found in the Scriptures, we tend to make this one about us. Because we're human, we seek out the moral lessons, both good and bad, that we can learn from the human characters found in the stories the Bible contains. Uh, And again, that's not a sin. That's not necessarily wrong. I just think when we do that, we lose sight of this is always, first and foremost, this, the Bible, about God. What does this passage, this chapter, tell us about the faithfulness of God? Well, look at Deuteronomy 32.4, also written by Moses, right? This is part of the Pentateuch part of the five books that Moses wrote, including Genesis, for the people of Israel who are standing on the edge of the Jordan River waiting to go into the land of promise. He, God, is the rock. His deeds are perfect. Everything he does is just and fair. He is a faithful God who does no wrong. How just and upright is he? So when we read chapter 22, no matter what we may see and how many checks in our spirit we have and how many times we say, what kind of God would do this? We have to come back to this kind of God, a God who is just and fair. He's faithful. He does no wrong ever at any point at any time, and he's just and upright in everything that he does. Now, remember this this discussion, this debate that Abraham had with God when God informed him that he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, surely, God, you wouldn't do such a thing, destroying the righteous along with the wicked. Now, why did he have this conversation with God? Because his nephew's living in one of those cities, and he doesn't want his nephew to be destroyed. Because at that point, I believe he's still thinking his nephew might be the heir to the promise. So he goes on and says, why, why would you, treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same, would you do that? Would you destroy a righteous person along with the wicked? Surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And in a sense, chapter 22 is going to answer that question. What kind of God are we talking about? What kind of God is going to appear to Abraham yet again, but with a message that seems contradictory to everything we know about God? Now, you got to keep in mind, Abraham has been following him for a couple of decades now, but he's still learning about God. He's still deciphering and understanding who God really is. He, he's not been a lifelong follower of Yahweh. God called him out of Ur. He was a pagan. He was an idolater. And over the last few decades, he has been learning the character of his God. And this is going to be one of the primary lessons. So in chapter 22, here's how it starts out. After these things, 
God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. After these things, what things? Well, everything we've studied, everything we've covered over the last nine weeks about Abraham, specifically the last six weeks, that he was called out of Ur, he was sent to Canaan, he was given all kinds of promises. We, we know that when he got to the land of Canaan, he ran to Egypt to get away from a famine, and then he got his wife into trouble with Pharaoh, and God rescued him, and all the things we've studied after these things, and everything we looked at last week, God tests him. And part of me wants to go, why now? Why are you testing him now? Well, it, it seems pretty obvious as we move through the passage that Abraham still has some things to learn. And so God's going to reveal to Abraham some kind of deficiencies in his faith relationship with God Almighty. So he says, take your son. Now, now remember, God shows up and he's speaking to him and listen to what he tells him and think how you might react. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, just stop and think for a moment. If God asked you to do that to any of your children, you would reject it, face out of hand. You would go, no way, that's from God. No way am I going to do that. God would never demand me to do that. But let's factor in that you have been waiting and waiting for decades for this to happen. Your son is born. We looked at it last week. And now God says, get rid of the one you've been waiting for. Don't just get rid of him like you did with Ishmael. Kill him. Put him to death. Offer him up as a burnt offering. So God is putting Abraham to the test. I know God tests me. Uh, I know God allows me to go into situations that I created for myself, right? I'm really good at creating those kinds of situations, and God tests me through those. But I also think God leads me into situations where my faith might be tested, where I might have to really trust in Him. But I've never been through anything like this. And, and I don't think any of us in the room can relate to this. It, it, this, is, this is significant. This is a once-in-a-lifetime situation that nobody else has ever been asked to go through except this one guy. God tests him. And that word is nasad. It means to try, to test, to prove. It's what you do with silver when you purify. You, you put it to the test. You put fire to it, and you see just how pure or impure it really is. That's what's going on here. He's testing him. But who's the test for? Is it for God? Does God need to know something about Abraham? In other words, is he seeking to find out what Abraham's really like? As far as I can tell from the rest of Scripture, God already knows everything he needs to know about Abraham. It's, it's like when you take a test in school. It's really not for the benefit of your teacher, right? It's for you to understand, I don't know this material. I don't understand this. The test reveals what you don't know and what you do know. It's for your benefit. God already knows what's going on in his heart. This test is really for Abraham, for his benefit, for him to be able to see just how much he really does trust God. And that's going to be significant because what we've seen over and over again is that God has told him, 
This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you fruitful. I'm going to give you a multitude of descendants. He said it over and over again. Back in Genesis chapter 15, he says, look toward heaven, number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said, so shall your offspring be. This is in direct response to this guy, Abraham, wanting to make somebody else the heir because he's tired of waiting. And God said, no, 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 that ain't, that, that's not how it's going to happen. And then it says, he believed the Lord. He believed the Lord. He, he trusted the word of God, and it says it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed what God said. Now, what's important to understand is, what does it mean that he believed the Lord? Well, I think it, it means that he believed the Lord in regards to these promises. These promises are going to happen. God is going to do what he said he's going to do. He took God at his word. But what we've seen is that the promises will be fulfilled The question is, how and when? See, if you look back at his life, all the things we've looked at in terms of um, him bartering with God over Lot to spare Lot's life, I think is driven by the fact that maybe Lot's the heir, but Lot's his nephew. He's not his offspring. What about Ishmael? He's my offspring. Yeah, but he didn't come through Sarah. It ain't going to be him. What about Eleazar, my manservant? No, that doesn't count either. You can't do a workaround. It's going to be my way or the highway. It's going to be my plan, not your plan. We've seen it over and over again. See, he's, he believes the promise will happen. He's just not sure about the means. And so he's trying to decipher the means. Maybe God needs some help. Maybe God can work through Lot, Eleazar, Ishmael. And God says, no, no, no. That's not how it's going to happen. He believes in the promise. He's just not sure about how. So Isaac comes along, right? We saw it last week. At the right time, just as God said, his barren wife in her 90s gives birth to this child. And now he knows what? This is, this is the one. It's Isaac. God's going to fulfill all his promises through Isaac. So his belief is now focused, what? On that one kid who's now 16, 17 years old. It says, the Lord visited Sarah as he said. The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And she conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken. God did what he said he would do. He now has the son he's been waiting for. And this is the fulfillment of the promise. You you can see, you can almost get into his sandals and, and just understand what's going through his brain, right? I've waited, I've waited, I've waited. I tried Lot, I tried Eleazar, I tried Ishmael. Finally, Isaac. This is the key to the future. Abraham and Sarah had managed to make Isaac the focal point of their lives. This is is my assessment of the beginning of this chapter. With his birth, birth, Isaac had become the center of their universe, and rightfully so, right? How long had they waited? Over 20 years. And now he's here. And so, Everything hinges on him. So you're going to love him, protect him, because he's the key, right? So God decides to test Abraham's allegiance and realign his priorities. And he did so in a jaw-dropping, faith-shaking manner. And this is where it gets squirrely, right? This is where it gets a little uncomfortable. Why in the world would God do this? Well, I put this chart in your notes. And again, the only reason I do charts, well, there's several reasons, because 
I used to be a graphic designer, so I like making charts. Um, but it also helps me understand. I'm a visual thinker. I have to see things. And so what I did is I took the promises of God, which are on the right, and we're not going to go over them. These are all the promises made in chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17, made to God about the future. And the funnel through which they would come is this guy named Isaac. That's how God was going to do it. He's going to bring about the promises through this young man named Isaac. All the families on earth will be blessed through you, God said. How? Through Isaac. See, if Isaac doesn't show up, none of these promises happen. We know that. Guess who else knows that? Abraham. He says, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. It will be through Isaac. Now Isaac is here, and what does he think? Now all the promises can come true. But what if God gets rid of Isaac? That's like a wrench in the system, right? When God says, take your son Isaac, the son whom you love, and put him to death, that's a major problem, not just for Abraham, but guess what? For us. God is basically saying, this is how the promises will be fulfilled. Now get rid of it. Get rid of what? Get rid of Isaac. Kill Isaac. So here's the question. Would he trust the God who made the promise or place his hope in the son who seemed to be the the key to the promise being fulfilled? You can see the dilemma, right? Am I going to trust God for the promise or am I going to trust my son who's the key to the promise being fulfilled? And God is a jealous God and God will not share his glory with anyone, including Isaac. And we've probably never thought about it that way because we know the story. We know how it ends. He spares Isaac. But what he's doing is he's putting a test to the man who's now, in a way, made an idol, a god, out of his son Isaac because in his brain, Isaac's the key. So what does he say? Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. See, God knows his heart. God knows he loves him. And I I think built into that phrase, whom you love, is almost whom you idolize, whom you make much of. Remember, he's kicked out Ishmael by order of his wife, and all he's got now is this one kid who's the hope for the future. And he says, kill him, offer him there. Where? In the land of Moriah as a burnt offering. Offer him up as an offering. An offering to who? To God. Give him to me. Give him to me. That's a, that's a tough order, no matter how you look at it. Offer them up to me. And, and it confuses us, right? It's a little hard for us to understand that God would do this. Well, guess who else it confused? The people of Israel standing on the banks of the Jordan River. They're sitting there going, they know the story, right? They're familiar with it, and they know how it turned out, but they still hear the story, and they go, still not real sure why God did this. Why did God risk everything? Because if Abraham had gone through with it. If God had allowed him to kill a son, we wouldn't be here. They didn't quite get it. They didn't understand it, and particularly so because they knew that God was opposed to the very thing that he was commanding Abraham to do. How did they know that? The law. The law clearly stated that you can't do this. You can't sacrifice anyone in the way that God's commanding Abraham to do. 
See, Abraham's on the way to a place called Mount Moriah, and we'll look at that in a second. But the people of Israel had gone to another mountain centuries later on their way to the land of promise, Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, they got the law from God. And here's what God said. You must not worship the Lord your God the way the other nations worship their gods. For they perform for their gods very, every detestable act that the Lord hates. And then he explains, they even burn their sons and daughters as sacrifices to their gods. You will not do that. Now, think about it. They're standing on the banks of the river. They're having this story reread to them about God commanding their patriarch to take his son's life by this manner in direct violation of the law of God. And they had to go, what's up with that? What was God thinking? We know from Deuteronomy 18, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Then why is God doing this? Why is God offering this up? Well, context is everything, right? At the point in which God appears to Abraham and tells him to do this heinous act, there is no law. The Mosaic law doesn't come for 400 plus years. So there is no law. God has not said, don't do this. God's now telling him to do something. There's no prohibition against child sacrifice. He's not violating God's law. God has not communicated the law yet. And so as far as Abraham's concerned, he hears God, Yahweh, tell him to do something. And what's his natural reaction? I better do this. Just like when God said, leave Ur, leave your family, leave everything behind and go to this land to which I'm going to send you, he did it. Well, he's going to do it again. He's going to obey God because God's telling him to do something. And as much as it may disconnect with his love for his son, his belief in the future, he's going to follow through. He's going to do what God called him, called him to do. So what happens? So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took his two young men with him and his son Isaac. There is nothing in this passage that says he had second thoughts, that he argued, that he prayed, that he goes, God, could we do it another way? Could I kill one of my servants? Could, you know, no, he, he just goes. And I think it's, it's sparse in its detail for a reason because Moses is trying to let us know that there, there was nothing in Abraham that argued with the command. Doesn't mean he didn't hate it, didn't not want to do it, but he did it because God told him to do it. He stepped out, he did it. He takes his son. And then it goes on, he cut the wood for the burnt offering and he arose and went to the place which God had told him. Just like in chapter 12, I want you to leave Ur, I want you to go to Canaan. Now he says, and I want you to leave Bethsaida, and I want you to go to Moriah. And here's what you're going to do when you're going to get there. You're going to take your son, and you're going to sacrifice him. Now, this is just a real quick aside, because I find it fascinating. You know, we read these passages sometimes, and we don't look for the details. He tells him to go to the land of Moriah. This is huge because it points to so many things we see in the Scriptures. Where's Moriah? Well, it's north of Beersheba. He's down in Beersheba, and God says, go to the land of Moriah. Now, Moriah is a mountain range in, in northern Israel, at this point, northern Canaan. And he's going to travel up that way, and he's going to end up in this place called Moriah, the land of Moriah. And again, it's a mountain range. Well, guess what? It's where Jerusalem is. That's the significance of Moriah. Why did he send him to Moriah rather than Mount Nebo or some other mountaintop? He sends him here to Jerusalem. And again, why is that important? Because 
Guess what sits on Mount Moriah? The temple. What was the temple for? Sacrifice. What's fascinating is right now the Dome of the Rock sits on Mount Moriah. The, the Muslims believe that Ishmael was the one who was sacrificed, and it's called the Dome of the Rock because under that dome is a rock on which they believe Ishmael was actually sacrificed and then was raised from the dead by God. See, they think Ishmael's the key. We think Isaac was the key. So this place is pretty important. On this mountain is Mount Zion, Mount Golgotha, Mount Olivet, and also the Temple Mount. Everything in the Scriptures has a purpose behind it. Nothing is happenstance. Nothing just happens willy-nilly. God is orchestrating everything. He's sending him to this very spot. And on the third day, as they're journeying, he opens his eyes, he lifts up his eyes, and he sees the place from afar. What place? Moriah. He sees it. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, I've read this passage so many times and just blown right past this verse. Listen to what he says, because it reveals a whole lot about what he's thinking. He says, stay here to his two servants. The boy and I are going to go over there to Mount Moriah, and we're coming back. Now, you can read that and just blow right past it, or you can stop and go, did he believe that? Did he believe they were coming back? What, what was he told to do? Sacrifice your child. So is it wishful thinking or faith? Is he hoping maybe God's going to change his mind? Maybe this isn't going to happen? What's going on that he would say to these servants, we'll be back? Did he believe that? Or is he hiding the ball from his son? You got to think about this. This kid's 16, 17, probably in pretty good shape. His dad's 100. I think I know who's going to win that battle. If, if, if my 100-year-old dad were going to sacrifice me in an altar, I think I, I could take him. I could take him now because he's no longer with us. But um, this, this is fascinating. I, I think it's trying to show us something that he really did believe something about his God. I think it's an expression of faith in God. How do I know that for sure? Hebrews chapter 11. Listen to what it says. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And here's, here's the key. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Now, nowhere up until this point in the book of Genesis have we heard anything about resurrection from the dead. Now, we, we know of at least one guy who was taken, he, he didn't die, right, Enoch? But we've seen nobody risen from the dead. And so how does he know this? He's just making the leap of faith that if God can take his life, God can bring him back to life. He's even able to raise him from the dead. And then he goes on, the, the author of Hebrews says, from which, figuratively speaking, he did get him back, right? He didn't physically die, it's interesting, if you study some of the first, second, and third century rabbis, they believed that Isaac was literally killed and that he was brought back to life. Because later on in the passage, it says that Abraham went back to his servants and they went home, and there's no mention of Isaac. So they, 
basically extrapolate and go, oh, he must have killed him, and then he came back to life at some later point. Nothing in the text says that. He believed that his God was able to do the miraculous. He believed that, hey, God, if you're going to take his life and he's the key to all the future, then you can bring him back to life. Abraham is in his dead level best. He's trying to trust God. Trust God with what? His son, the future, everything. He's having to lay it literally all on the altar that God will do what he says he could do. He believes that God's promises will happen. And he also believes that Isaac is the key. So if you put those two things together, right? God's going to fulfill all his promises. Isaac is the key. Then somehow God's going to keep Isaac either alive or bring him back to life because he's the key. That's what's going on in his brain. But in doing so, he's almost treating God like a genie and Isaac like the magic lamp. You know, that I got to have Isaac in order to get the fulfillment of the promises. And so in a way, and, and this is me reading into the text, but I don't think it's a far reach, that he, he's putting more faith in Isaac than he is in God. Because he believes Isaac is non-negotiable. I got to have him. And all of his hope is now falling on that young boy. Yes, he believes in God. Yes, he's hoping, hoping God will bring him back to life. But the key is he's, he's seeing all of the future promises hinging on that one child. And he's making him the basis of his hope. And this is important for us to understand that Yes, he believed God. Yes, he, he thought God could bring Isaac back from the dead. But it puts all the emphasis on the wrong thing. And that's the reason for the test. See, God knew this. God knew why he was testing this guy. Because his heart, his hope was in the wrong thing. It was in Isaac. Victor Hamilton says this, The test for Abraham is not primarily whether to sacrifice a beloved son, Right? though that is no doubt involved emotionally. The real test is whether Abraham will sacrifice the one person who can perpetuate the promises of God. That's the real test, right? Will you put to death this seemingly non-negotiable hope in the future promises? Will you do it? All those promises that his posterity hinges on. But I think there's more to it than that. I think there's One step further we need to go in order to understand what's happening here. God wanted Abraham to trust him, not Isaac. Now, here's why I think this is so important. Over the years of my life, I have put my hope in the wrong things so often. Things given to me by God, things made possible by the hand of God, And I've put my hope in those things. It could be my career. It could be my finances. It could be my family. It could be my marriage. And I make a God out of the wrong thing. And I feel like that's exactly what's going on here. See, Abraham needed to know that God didn't need Isaac. Boy, Ken, he's got to have Isaac. Without Isaac, none of this can happen. See, that's the logic of an Abraham and that's the same kind of logic we use, is that God is somehow hamstrung because he has to have Isaac, and yet he's expendable. God is not obligated to do anything through Isaac. 
And I know you're, you're probably going, what? That, that's, that's insane. That's crazy. That's just, that's nonsense. But see, you got, you got to understand that I told you at the beginning, this is all about God and God is not obligated to anyone or anything. He's not stuck. He's never, he never finds him in a place where I'm damned if I do, I'm damned if I don't. I have to do this. No, God is God. God is always sovereign. God is always in control. Listen to what Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day. This is fascinating. He, he, they're arguing and they're saying, you know, well, we're, we're the children of Abraham. You can't say that about us. And he goes, don't say to each other, we're safe or we're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these rocks. Now, that was, a, that was a slap to the face of the religious leaders, right? I can turn a rock into a child of Abraham, God says, or Jesus says. He's not obligated to use us. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. Guess what? God didn't need Isaac. I don't know how he would have done a workaround, but guess what? God can do workarounds. God can do things differently than we think he has to. So would Abraham worship the gift or the giver? Great question, right? Great question for you and I. How often have you worshiped the gift over the giver? Something God has graciously given you and you make it more important than the one who gave it to you. Is he going to idolize Isaac or is he going to reverence, fear God? That's the test. And we know he passed the test. That he literally followed through. He took the wood of the burnt offering, he lays it on his son, and he took his, in his hand the fire and the knife. He goes up on the mountain, leaves his servants behind, and what happens? Isaac, on the way, starts to wise up. I don't know if he's a little slow, but he goes, hey, Dad, where's the lamb? Notice, the one thing he didn't bring was a lamb, and it's only now that Isaac puts two and two together and goes, we got the wood, we got the fire. We're missing something. He says, what's going on? Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. A couple of things that are probably clear here is that he knows that his son is the lamb. He's already provided the lamb. And he's already preparing to sacrifice that lamb. Who doesn't know that? Isaac yet. Isaac's just going along for the ride at this point. So they went, both of them together. God will provide. Remember I said that's one of the key themes. God's going to provide. But in a way different than what Abraham expects. What's he expecting? Hebrews chapter 11. God will raise my son from the dead. No, God's going to do it differently. God's going to provide, but in a totally different manner. And that's what makes this timeless. That's what makes this so applicable even today. Abraham believes Isaac to be the lamb. That's why he's going to go through with this. That's why he's going to bind him. He's going to put him on the altar. He's going to hold that knife and get ready to kill him. But God had another plan in mind. Now, what's interesting about this is, once again, we want to read this through the eyes of those people standing on the banks of the Jordan River, right, who are waiting to go into the promised land. And as they read this story, they have to think about the Passover. Remember the Passover that was given to them back in the land of Egypt. We, as Christians, on this side of the cross, think about the sinless Lamb of God. But we both, when we read this story, automatically think of something other than just the sacrifice of Isaac, right? There's more behind the story. It's a foreshadowing. 
It's a picture of things yet to come. Well, for them, it was the annual celebration of Passover. Here's what it says in Exodus. God says, on the 10th day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household without blemish, a male a year old. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And then he goes on and says, then I will pass through the land and I will strike at the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. When they heard this story, they couldn't help but think about the Passover that God had given them, when God passed over them, when God spared them by virtue of those lambs that were sacrificed, those unblemished, sinless, so to speak, lambs. The Jews knew Isaac lived, right? They knew the story. How did they know that? Because they existed. Had he put Isaac to death, they wouldn't be around because they're the descendants of Jacob, one of the sons of Isaac. So they know how the story ends. And that's why I think they pictured those lambs, those lambs, all those lambs that died back in Egypt so that they might live. And they had been spared just like Isaac was spared. That's what they heard when they read the story. What do we hear when we read the story? Well, hopefully we go to what John the Baptist said about Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's, that's our Savior, right? That's our sin substitute. That's the one who died in our place and took away our sins. Matthew says, now, as they were eating the Passover meal, once again, here's that foreshadowing. The disciples are eating Passover with Jesus, and he takes the bread, and he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples. Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my, the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. See, we read the story and we realize there's a picture of something greater to come, right? The coming of Jesus Christ. What does Isaiah chapter 53 tell us? That, that incredible chapter that, that prophesies the coming of Jesus. He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Then he goes on. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. What's fascinating about this story in Genesis chapter 22 is how little Isaac said about what was going on other than, hey, Dad, where's the sheep? Where's the lamb? And from that point forward, he says nothing. I'd have been screaming like a banshee if my dad was trying to bind me and put me on wood so that he could sacrifice me. He says nothing. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. See, this is what Isaac faced. When his father put him on there, Abraham knew that with his death, I lose all hope of descendants because my wife will probably never bear another child. But it's a foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus. That's what this is all about. So what happens? They get to the place. 
He builds the altar. He lays the wood there. He binds his son, lays him on the altar. Then he takes out his hand and he takes the knife and he's about to slaughter his son. And he hears God once again, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For I know that you fear God, seeing that you have withheld your son, you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. It's interesting here is that he, he leaves out the son you love. I don't think it means that he no longer loved his son. It, it's simply, I think, Moses' way of saying he loves God more. He, he's willing to do what God's call, called him to do. And he says, you fear me. I know that you fear me. I know that you reverence me. What does that mean? What is God saying? And again, this is, this is critical for you and I. This entire chapter is called the Akedah in Hebrew. It means binding. It, it's It's their name for the chapter. And the Akedah, thus, is an account that teaches God's people what fearing God is all about, the willing sacrifice of everything. I can't think of anything that says everything more than take your son's life. Sacrifice him. A demonstration of love for God over and against anything that advanced a rival claim to that love. That means loving God more than you love your wife, your kids, your car, your house, your job, your portfolio, whatever it is that you love, and nothing wrong with loving those things, but if you love them more than God, you've missed the point. And that was the test for Abraham. Do you love me more than you love Isaac? And he passed the test. And then God supplies what? A ram. He took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What do we know got provided centuries later on that same mount? The sacrifice of the Son of God, the sinless Lamb of God, who gave his life in your place so that you could have eternal life. On Mount Golgotha, there on the range of Mount Moriah, just yards from the Temple Mount. See, this is all a foreshadowing of what God has done for you and I, the substitutionary death of Jesus. God provided a stand-in, a proxy, a substitute for Isaac, and he's done the same thing for you and I. Isaac was spared by death, from death by God. So have we. We don't have to face death. We will physically die. I hate to break the news to you. We will die, but we will not face eternal separation from God. We will spend eternity with him. Why? Because he, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So how does this whole story wrap up? Once again, God confirms his covenant. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time. And God says, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. He reiterates every aspect of the promise. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. But this gets back to the whole point of the story. Isaac was a means to an end. He's a conduit. He's a PVC pipe. He is the means to get to the real offspring 
that God has been talking about from day one, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 15, chapter 17. See, there's something greater to come that Abraham does not yet know about, but we know about, right? Here's what Paul explains about the whole story of the life of Abraham. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, in other words, to all of his descendants, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. See, Isaac wasn't the hope. Jesus Christ was the hope. Isaac was a means to the end. Jesus Christ. So here's your question. How does Paul's explanation in Galatians 3.16, 3, which we just looked at, change the way you view all the promises God made to Abraham? How's that a game changer? That one statement, not to all your offspring, but to one, Jesus Christ. Why is that important to understanding what God promised Abraham? Secondly, how could the command that Isaac be sacrificed create in Abraham a greater dependence upon and hope in God? See, remember, he's going to go forward, and we're going to see next week as we wrap up this half, he's going to come to his death. But from the point where he almost sacrificed Isaac to his death, how has his view of God changed because of this? Then finally, what gifts have you received from God that you've ended up worshiping in place of him? Discuss what Romans 12.1 would look like when applied to everyday life. Well, Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the life of Abraham. Lord, don't let us turn him into an icon of virtue, someone to worship, someone to emulate. Um, But would you show us how we too can sometimes make gods out of the wrong things? We can worship the gift rather than the giver. We can place our hope rather than in you in the things that we think are key that we have to have to have happiness and contentment. Lord, would you show us that nothing is to replace you and that the true fear of God is to not let anything be a substitute for you. Show us how to love you more. Show us how to love our kids well, love our wives well, love fellow believers well, love the lost well, but to never love them more than we love you because without our love for you, we can't love them right, rightfully in a godly way. Thank you for these guys, Father. Would you bless their conversations and may you be lifted up and may they be challenged to walk closer with you in the days ahead. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.